And just uh, discovery, excited to be here this morning, kind of today. So my recommendation is that you kind of follow along on the PowerPoint behind. Um, but if you, you know, are visiting with us the first time, or you just don't have a Bible and you would like one, um, if you guys want to raise your hands, one of our ushers would gladly hand you a Bible. It's our gift to you. I want you to be able to have that and take it home with you guys. So I get the privilege of kicking off uh, our mini-series, four-week mini-series titled Let There Be Rest. And, you know, as I think the elders are looking into this, we wanted to talk about rest because, you know, kind of as GR just shared, we as a church have been going through, as you guys know, um, a season of transition, right? We've been without a senior pastor for um, about a little over a year now, right? And I think it's been an incredible time, an incredible time where God's been doing a lot of really cool things on the body here and seeing kind of people step up and filling in and playing a role. Um, but at the same time, I think if we're honest, it's been a challenging time too, right? I think it's been a challenging time um, because people are doing a lot. I think sometimes uh, people are tired and maybe burnt out a little bit. And personally, I think this is such a perfect time to be talking about rest, right? Um, because as we're, you know, potentially going to be having a new senior pastor coming on board, I think the question for all of us is what kind of church culture are we going to be inviting the senior pastor to be a part of, right? Are we going to be inviting the senior pastor to come into a church that is full of burnt out people? That when the pastor gets here, we say, ah, oh, yes, finally I can rest and the pastor's going to do everything. That would kind of suck for him, right? Or are we going to be a church that knows how to rest and rest well, such that when the pastor comes, they're coming to join the work that God is already doing here, so that we can truly be a church that is reaching our city to change our world, right? I think that's the kind of church that we want to be. So as we head into the series, three things for us to kind of keep in mind. Okay, I'm going to call this my three keys to the series, and this is just kind of overarching um, things that I really need us to remember. So the first one is this, that there is much room for grace and difference of opinions in regards to the Sabbath day. Okay? Um, I think at Discovery, as a church, I know we come from all sorts of different traditions, and theological backgrounds, and I think that's awesome. That's actually one of my favorite things about Discovery Church. Right, that we have unity and diversity, that we have people of all sorts of backgrounds that can come together and worship together and agree to disagree on secondary and tertiary issues, right? And I think that's great. Um, Paul in Romans 14 talks about you know, not judging each other in regards to how we practice Sabbath. Um, and so our, our hope um, as a teaching team in this series is that we're really going to be focusing on the heart of Sabbath, and the heart of Sabbath and what that means and what rest looks like, and not so much on trying to define any strict um, method of how you practice it, okay? That's the first thing. The second uh, key to the series is that in the arc of redemptive history, Sabbath rest finds its truest fulfillment in Jesus. If you guys were here last week, uh, Tom shared with us about Jesus being categorically greater than. And at Discovery, we firmly believe that the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about one big story of redemption that finds its climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, um, Paul tells us that the Sabbath day was a shadow, but the substance is Jesus. And so our hope in this series is we're actually going to be looking at this pattern of creation and then fall, and then Jesus, and then new creation. We're going to be walking through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible today, 
Next week, we're going to be looking at some of the prophets. And then we're going to be looking at the person of Jesus and what he taught about Sabbath and then how the New Testament authors wrote about the Sabbath. And our hope in all of this is that we would see in Sabbath a picture of Jesus and that we would see the glory of Jesus and beauty of Jesus all the more in this four-week series. The third point is this. that In this series, we don't want you to be burdened, but we want you to have great freedom in Christ. Where in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery to the law. Right? I think Sabbath is such an incredible gift of God, but anytime we talk about practicing a spiritual discipline, it's so easy for us to start feeling burdened and start feeling guilty about it, right? And our hope in this series is that you would walk away encouraged, rested, and refreshed, not burdened, okay? So that's the third thing I want us to keep in mind in this series, is that you guys would just enjoy the freedom that we have in Christ, that we get to practice Sabbath rest. All right, so with that in mind, next slide, it's going to be an eye chart. Okay, so I know you guys got some handouts today. Um, rest right here is all the blanks for you. You guys can just kind of fill them in. The reason for this here is that um, as I was kind of practicing a little bit, um, my wife Joy was kind enough to be my guinea pig. And as we were going through the order and agenda that we have set here, it was really boring, okay? <laughs> um, and seriously, like, Joy almost died last night. <laughs> So we're going to change things up a little bit. All of the content is still ultimately the same as what you have up there. So the blanks are legit. Um, but the order that we're going to handle it is going to be a little bit different. And you guys can thank Joy for that later today. <laughs> All right. So today we're really going to focus in on the Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible. Um, and in order to understand that, we really kind of need to uh, travel back in time a little bit, right? Go back about 3,000 years. And put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite that had just been freed from slavery in Egypt. That's kind of where we need to start from in order to understand what Sabbath meant for them. And this concept of Sabbath rest, right, is, on the one hand, rest is so simple, right? such a simple concept. But on the other hand, I think it's really hard for us to do and for us to do well. I remember when I was maybe three or four years out of college, I was working my full-time job and also kind of helping to lead the campus ministry at our church. And man, that was a really, really busy time for me. I was constantly tired, so tired that I remember one time I was eating a bowl of noodle soup, and I literally had the chopsticks in my mouth, and I fell asleep. I was so tired all the time that I had memorized how many steps there were in the office so I could get a little bit of shut-eye as I walked from one meeting to the next. And you know, at the time, Joy and I, we were dating, and we were um, long distance, and so Joy was uh, coming down to visit me um, in San Diego one weekend. And I remember I was super looking forward uh, to her visit. And, you know, when she came that weekend, it was a beautiful San Diego day, probably like the mid-80s, and we were hanging out at Coronado Beach. If you've never been there, it's kind of one of the, it's rated one of the top 10 beaches in America, just like expanse of white sand as far as you can see. And it was beautiful, and we were walking along, um, holding the hands, and I distinctly remember thinking at one point, what are we doing? This is so unproductive, right? Which is horrible, horrible. Sorry, Joy. <laughs> but maybe some of you resonate with that, 
right? Like we live in such a performance-driven culture. I think especially here in the city of Davis, there's a sense in which being busy means that we're important, and being important means that we're valued. Right? It's very hard for us to slow down. We almost feel like we should be doing something all the time. And I think what I want us to walk away from today, right, or the challenge for us is as a church in the city of Davis, are we kind of picking up some of that culture? Right? Are we changing the city or is the city changing us? Are we also, as a church, becoming so performance-driven that we're starting to find our value in what we do? Um, So my thesis this morning is this, that Sabbath rest is an intentionally counter-cultural gift that flies in the face of oppressive worldly values. That where the world says you're defined by what you do, Sabbath rest reminds us that we're defined by what God has done. That's our thesis this morning. So the new agenda is going to be as follows. There you go. All right, some more pictures. Um, The first thing we're going to look at is an eschatological hope of rest. Now, eschatological is kind of a big word. I use it all the time. I don't really know what it means, so I looked it up. And (laughs) eschatological, I mean, eschatology basically means the study of last things, right? And when we use the word eschatological, we're basically talking about the end times, right? Not just like Armageddon and kind of all that weird stuff like that that I think nobody really fully understands, but eschatological as in the ultimate hope of what we as believers are longing for, right? We're talking about the hope of the world redeemed. We're talking about the hope of new creation. And we're talking about the hope of rest this morning, right? That there is an eschatological hope of rest um, that is for us. In order for us to understand this concept, we actually need to start back in Genesis, in the beginning. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 to chapter 2, verse 3. I'll go ahead and read this for us. And it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, so I guess just to put it out there um, for any of you science peoples, um, for me personally, I don't think Genesis is trying to make a uh, scientific hypothesis on the beginnings of the world. Uh, Maybe it is, but I don't think that's the point. I think the point is actually deeply theological, right? And I think when we understand the seven-day pattern of creation, we begin to understand some really deep truths about um, who God is and who we are created to be and what rest is about, okay? So seven, right, as you guys know, in uh, ancient times was a perfect number. It was a number of completion, right? It conveyed a sense that things were complete and good and done. And when you look at the pattern of creation, what you see is that in each day, there's a buildup. Right? It says it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. On the sixth day, it was very good. And then on the seventh day here, it says that God finished his work and he rested. So what that means is that this rest for us captures the idea of a completeness and a very goodness and a wholeness. Right? That God's rest here on the seventh day 
captures the idea that things are the way they were meant to be. So when we talk about an eschatological hope of rest, this is what we're referring to. Right, that throughout the scriptures, anytime we talk about biblical rest, we're looking back to this picture here that we get in Genesis of a world where things are the way it's supposed to be, of a world that was created very good. It's a simple point, but I think it's really important, right? Because what this tells us about rest is that Christian rest is not just about a cessation from work. Right? I mean, how often do we kind of come home after a long day from work, we're really tired, and we plop down on the couch, and we turn on you know, Netflix and binge watch The Flash. That's what I do. Um, or maybe we're you know, super tired, and we sit down, and we just you know, surf ESPN all day. Or we you know, catch up on our latest Instagram feed or Facebook feed. Right? And before we know it, two hours have gone by, and we have ceased from work, but we aren't actually any more rested or refreshed. And so this idea here is simply this, that when we look at Genesis chapter 2, we see that the idea of biblical rest is about wholeness, very goodness, about the way creation was meant to be. It's more than just a cessation from work. Next point for us is that the Sabbath is a sign of God's covenant with Israel. Right? Sabbath as a sign. Um, the next time we see the concept of Sabbath really pop up in the Torah and the Pentateuch, is in Exodus, and let's go ahead and read Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 17. And it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Okay, there's a lot going on there. I think clearly we see that the idea of Sabbath rest was really important for the people of Israel, right? And why was it so important? It's because it was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign of their covenant with God. Now, covenant isn't, word, isn't a word that we use very much these days, right? So what is covenant, and what is a sign of a covenant? To use a modern-day example, marriage right, is an example of a covenant relationship. Right, that when a man, man and a woman make their vows to be faithful to one another, they're entering into a covenant relationship with one another. And what's the sign of that covenant? It's a ring. Right? Oh, I'm going to get this out of my pocket. Okay. I struggled getting it out for my best, man, best friend's wedding as well. Um, all right, so the ring. Right? This ring here is a sign of the covenant. Right? It's a sign of the marriage covenant because the... Wedding ring does two things as a sign. One, it lets everyone know that right, I now belong to joy. Right? And two, as a circle, it is a symbol of unending love. Right? It is a sign that every time we see this, we're supposed to remember right, um, the covenant and the promise that we've made to one another. Right? That's an example of a sign of a covenant. Now, I'm going to put on this ring, and I want you guys to watch 
see what happens. Can you guys still see me? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> In all seriousness, right? What just happened? Did I just become a more loving husband because I put on this ring? No, right? Like nothing changed because I put on the ring. The ring has no power in of itself. It is a sign of the covenant, right? It's a sign of something else. And in the same way for Israel, the Sabbath day was a sign of their covenant with God, right? The day in of itself was not magical. It was a sign that pointed to something. This is why in Amos chapter 8, God calls out Israel that even though they were practicing the Sabbath day, they were missing the heart of it, right? Because God says in Amos that, you know, Israel was oppressing the poor, and on the Sabbath day, they kept the Sabbath day, but all they could think about was how they couldn't wait to get back to work so they could make more money in their crooked way, right? And God calls them out on that in Amos chapter 8 and says, you guys are missing the heart of Sabbath, right? It's a sign that was supposed to point to something. So as a sign of the covenant, what was it pointing to? Two things. Exodus chapter 20, or 8 to 11. Says that remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Right, we see here just as we did in Exodus 31, that it was a sign, again, that points back to that eschatological hope of rest that we saw in Genesis. Right? It's pointing back to the sense of wholeness and very goodness of the way that the world should be. Um, the other time we see this is Deuteronomy chapter 5. I won't read the whole thing because it's pretty much the same, but just the highlighted part. It says that you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Right, so we see there that the sign of the Sabbath is also a sign that points to God as Redeemer. So in both those passages, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we see that the Sabbath, the sign of the covenant, was pointing to God as Creator and to God as Redeemer. And both of those things look back to the scatological hope right, of a world made right again. What does this practically mean for us? I think it means that when we practice Sabbath rest, not only is it more than a cessation from work, but it's about pressing in to who our God is. It's about remembering and pressing in to God as creator and God as redeemer and God as our father. Again, we live in a culture that is all about getting stuff done. And I think sometimes we even approach God that way, right? Sometimes I'm like, oh, I need to just learn more stuff about God. But I think there's something about Sabbath rest that says, hey, you can slow down, and you can stop, and you can just come into the presence of God and draw near to your Father in heaven and be with him and enjoy him. Right? Again, thinking back to that post-college time where I was super tired and burnt out, I remember there was um, one night where I was you know, at one of my favorite uh, pearl milk tea shops and you know, trying to you know, read my Bible and do my devos. And I was just, my brain was so fried that I couldn't consume any additional information. Right? You guys ever have those times where you're reading the Bible and it's just like words bouncing off your mind because it doesn't make any sense? And I remember just putting my head down on the table and imagining resting 
in the arms of my Heavenly Father. And as I did that, I was just like, man, it is such a blessing that I can rest in God. I think sometimes that's what rest looks like. It's about remembering who our Heavenly Father is as creator and redeemer. Third thing, Sabbath as a taste. Right? You can also think of it as Sabbath as an appetizer. Right? For those of you that are foodies, you guys know that when you go to a restaurant, sometimes the appetizers are like the best part of the meal. right? And it's because appetizers are designed to make you want more. So Sabbath as an appetizer, what do I mean by this? Let's look at Leviticus chapter 25. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing because it's like 50 verses, so I just picked out a few verses for us to look at. But I like to look at extremes when I'm trying to understand something. Right? I'm looking at something and I'm like, uh, how does this work? If I look at the extreme version of it, it starts to make some aspects of it very clear and we begin to understand the heart of it. And so in Leviticus 25, we see that not only did Israel have a Sabbath day, but they also had the idea of a Sabbath year, once every seven years. And even more extreme, they had this thing called a year of Jubilee, once every 50 years. We'll go ahead and read that up there. Um, but it says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vine, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. All right, there's three things here that I want us to see about Sabbath. Okay? The first is that Sabbath was a gift for God's people to enjoy. Okay? In an agricultural society where you're working literally to eat, for your God to come and say, hey, every seven years, I want you to take a Sabbath year. It's pretty incredible. Right? He's saying, I want the land to have a Sabbath. And get this, right? The Sabbath wasn't just for the people. It was for the land and the animals and everything, right? It was a Sabbath year. And in that year, the people were to just enjoy the fruits of the land, right? Not reaping, not harvesting, just enjoying it. And that's pretty sweet, right? That every seven years that the people would get to just rest and enjoy and share in God's provision. That's one thing about the Sabbath. The second we see is that Sabbath rest was about an act of trust. Because again, as an agricultural society, to not plant anything for a whole year is pretty scary. But God here is saying, I want you to trust in me, right? That I am your provider and that I will be sufficient for you. And we, as we saw in the Philippians series, right? That you know, whether in plenty or want, right? We can rejoice because Christ is enough. So that's what God was kind of calling Israel to here. And the third thing that we want to see and this here we really see in this idea of, let's go back one. Sorry, go back one slide. Great, thank you. All right, what we really see is in the idea of proclaiming liberty throughout the land. Um, you know, back then in agricultural society, how do you accrue wealth? Right? How do you get rich in a farming land? You need more land, right? And the more land you have, the more crops you can grow, 
the more crops you can grow, the wealthier you get. And for somebody who was um, poor, right, what they did was they would have to sell, kind of rent themselves out as indentured servants to the landowners so that they could work the land and hopefully someday be able to um, kind of buy back their own freedom. The year of Jubilee, once every 50 years, was so incredible because on the year of Jubilee, God basically hit the reset button. He wanted his people in Israel to put everything back. Right? That for you as a landowner, you're going to give back all the land that you have accrued. And for those who had had to sell themselves into indentured servanthood, that they would be freed and they can go back to their land. Right? That is a crazy, mind-blowing idea that was so countercultural to the nations around them at that time. Think about it. Babylon, Egypt, right? those were nations about accruing wealth and power and making a name for themselves. And God here is saying that as my people, I want you to be different. I think for us today, this should resonate, right? I mean, we live in such a materialistic and capitalistic society that we don't even think twice about accrual of wealth. Like, that's just what people do. Has it ever struck you that it's kind of crazy that somebody's net worth is defined by their bank account, right? And we just use those words because that's part of our society and culture. Um, you know, I love the game Monopoly. I'd probably like it a little bit more if I didn't lose all the time. But Monopoly, in some ways, is kind of like a microcosm of understanding the kind of materialistic drive of our society, right? That you win the game by buying up a bunch of land and getting rich, right? And to understand how radical the year of Jubilee was, it'd be like you guys trying to play Monopoly, except every 30 minutes, you have to give back all the land to everybody. Like, how would you even play the game of Monopoly? It wouldn't work, right? Like, it would completely change the game. And I think that's what God was intentionally doing here in the year of Jubilee. He's saying that this is a game changer because you, Israel, as my people, no longer operate under the economy of this world. And you, as my people, Israel, have different values, and you have been freed from the slavery of this rat race that we all live in, and I want you to live differently. And I think that's the same call for us today, that when we practice Sabbath, we're tasting a little bit, a little bit of what a world made right is supposed to look like, and that we as God's people are called to be different. And I think Sabbath is a reminder of that as well. So hopefully as we've been talking about Sabbath just a little bit, you guys are starting to see, right, just the incredible freedom and radical nature that this gift of Sabbath was. It's kind of a sneak peek, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ultimately point us to Jesus, right? Because as great as this idea of the year of Jubilee was, it was still a sign, right? A sign that was pointing to something even more. And when Jesus came on the scene in Luke chapter 4, he saw himself as the ultimate fulfillment of Sabbath rest. He says in Luke chapter 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed, oh sorry, I'm going to back up a little bit. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is actually reading from the school in Isaiah, right? And he steps into the temple and he picks it up and he reads this passage here and it says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You guys get that? Jesus here is reading an Old Testament passage about the year of Jubilee, right? And he's saying that that year of Jubilee is talking about him, right? That this idea of an eschatological rest is ultimately pointing to and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And this is why Jesus can say in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is light and my yoke is easy. For us as Christians today, rest is not limited to one day or once every seven years or one year of Jubilee, right? Because the sign has pointed to Jesus who has come. And so if we are in Christ, then we can rest in him all the time. So practically speaking, what does this look like? You might be saying, okay, cool. We kind of understand a scatological hope of rest, something we're looking forward to, practically, what does this look like? I'm going to give us just two things. The first, right, is that if we are in Christ, we can rest anytime, anywhere, okay? That we can even rest in the midst of busyness. Um, Just this past week, it was a very busy week for me, um, kind of working two jobs-ish, plus trying to prep a little bit. And I remember at one point, I was, you know, in San Diego getting ready to walk to the office, and... I was just feeling so like anxious, right? Like, man, I'm tired, I'm burnt out, I'm anxious. There's so much stuff I have to do on the day before me, and I'm almost certain there's no way I'm going to be able to finish everything that I have planned to do, right? And as I was in the car in the parking lot, I took just 30 seconds, a minute, and reflected on what it means that God is my creator and that God is my redeemer and that Jesus is my Savior, what it means that I no longer find my value in the rat race of this world, that I am no longer defined by what I do or what I accomplish, but I am defined in Christ and what he's done for me. And even in just those 30 seconds to a minute, remembering that for just a moment allowed me to go into work that day restful, right? Because that work was no longer a burden to me. I could work knowing that I belong to Christ, that I've been freed from the rat race of slavery of this world. So that's the first thing, right? Is that we can rest anytime, anywhere. And my hope for us is that we would press into that, right? That we would long for that. When we're feeling anxious, that we would long and press into the rest that Christ freely gives to us. But having said that, just because we can rest anytime, anywhere, doesn't mean that we should therefore not set aside time to practice rest, right? Because I think as a culture, we are, or as a people, we are people and creatures of habit, right? And we need to celebrate and remember what we care about. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, you know, we would always do something for Mother's Day, right? Uh, Whether it was cooking breakfast in the morning or writing a card or at least something small to celebrate Mother's Day. And we did it because we cared about mom. But every year we did it, we would also remind ourselves on Mother's Day that, hey, every day is Mother's Day, right? You shouldn't just be nice to your mom on Mother's Day. Every day is Mother's Day. And I was like, cool, great. And so there was one year where I really took that to heart. And on Mother's Day, I did nothing. And I can tell you that did not go over well. Uh, Thankfully, I think we made up for it in the evening. 
Um, right? But to say that every day is Mother's Day doesn't mean that therefore we should not celebrate Mother's Day. Right? Because if you keep doing that, eventually the phrase every day is Mother's Day loses its meaning because Mother's Day doesn't even really exist anymore. In the same way with this idea of Sabbath rest. Right? Yes, we can rest in Christ anytime, anywhere. But I still think it's super important for us to set aside and protect special times of rest right, in order to remember and commemorate and step back and right, remember the sign that this rest was supposed to point us to. And what might that look like for you? I don't know, right? For some of us, maybe it's a 24-hour day that we set aside and we protect. For some of us, maybe it's an afternoon or a dinner right, that we set aside. Maybe it looks like disconnecting from social media for a little bit. Maybe it looks like not working or not engaging in schoolwork for a little bit. Right? Whatever it is, how are you taking time to step back and to taste of and long for this eschatological hope of a world made right? How are we taking away to step back from all the busyness and to find rest in Jesus? Our encouragement for you as we head into this series and for you this week is that you would set aside a time, right? Find a time and set aside a time to practice rest. Maybe it's not something you normally do, but we want to do this together um, as a church. Let's just try it for these next four weeks, and let's see, right, how good God is as we press into him. That's our hope for us. So when just wrapping things up, I'm going to go back to our thesis and just read it one more time. The Sabbath rest is an intentionally countercultural gift that flies in the face of oppressive worldly values. Where the world says you're defined by what you do, Sabbath rest reminds us that we're defined by what God has done. Church, brothers and sisters, my hope is that we as God's people would be a people characterized by rest. That in a culture and in a city that is so performance-driven, we would stand out like an oasis in the middle of a desert. That we would be rested, that we would be refreshed, that when people look at who we are as a church, they say, man, these guys have something different. And that we would be a church that is reaching our city and changing the culture of our city because we are in Christ, and Christ is our rest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we just thank you so much for who you are and how good you are. God, we thank you for being a creator that made everything very good and a creator that invites us into your rest. And we thank you for being our redeemer that is saving us from the slavery of this world. God, and we thank you for Jesus um, that in him you have conquered sin and death, as we celebrated last week, and that in him we can look ahead to the hope of redemption in a world made new. Father, we pray as a church right now that your spirit would be at work in each one of us, that you would be moving us and causing us to press in to your love, that we would draw near to you, Father, and that as we draw near to you, 
that we would be transformed and that we would be changed, that we would taste of a world made right. And in doing so, we would long to be your hands and feet that then goes out and blesses the world around us. Father, we thank you for the gift of rest. We pray that we as a congregation would just enjoy this gift of rest that you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name.